about uh, nine months ago last fall, I had a fun activity that I presented to you guys uh, at our one, our one of our unstained meetings, and I asked actually Nathan Hodell to participate in this exercise. And uh, if you guys remember this, the, the goal was to take a piece of paper like this and to cut a hole in it and to fit your body through it, okay? And so he did such a great job. He actually pulled it off. He actually cut a hole through this thing and fit his body through it just with that piece of paper. And I was, I was really shocked. I didn't think it was possible, but he did it. And, uh, but yeah, I, thought, I thought it was so good that I wanted him to try it again, okay? I wanted him to try it again. And uh, so sa same rules kind of apply as normal, but here's the thing. If I can get this working. I've got problems with this point, huh? Here, here's the thing. Um, what I what I what I want you to do is I I don't I don't want you to use this piece of paper. Okay. I want you to use a smaller one. Okay. I want you to do it with this one right here. Okay. So and the the key is you you only have three minutes to pull this off. Okay. So think you can do it? No. No. Well we'll we'll give it a shot. All right. So three minutes. I'll uh, I'll have my uh, my my timer here going. Okay, you ready? All right. Remember last time how you did that. Remember how you did that. Go. James, will you show us how you did it last time? I did show I did show you how to do it last time. Yeah. I don't think you did. I don't remember. Or maybe I didn't. I don't know. I don't think you did. There is a way to do it though. See if you can fit your body through that. Here, go, go and stand up so everyone can see what you're doing. Okay, I don't, I don't know how to do this. Can I break? I can't no, uh, no, the hole has to, the hole can't be compromised, so it has to be a complete hole. So I mean, if you wanted to break that, you could, but it would have to still be a hole large enough or um, big enough for you to fit through. So. Not even a baby could probably fit through that. There's a way I do it. There's not how to do it. That. <laughs> <laughs> it's killing me. Huh? No. If, at any point, if you want to, you can give up because I know it's really, really hard. There's gotta be a way. I just don't know how. There is. There is a way. Are you gonna show us? No, I will show me. you. It's gonna kill me. It's gonna kill me. I will show you. Yes. I'm not gonna try to do this. <laughs> it's a little harder than it looks, isn't the it? First. So. All right. That's fine. That's fine. No problem. I don't know how to do this. That's okay. That's okay. You don't know how to do it. That's that's the point. So that's okay. Uh, there is a way to do this, and yeah, it's, it's actually not as hard as you might think it is. You just have to know exactly how it works. You have to know the directions on it. So let me show you how this works, okay? And we can, I can show you step by step. You fold the piece of paper in half, first of all, okay? Fold in half, like so. Uh, let's get a little better there. Right there. And then, after you fold in half, you need to cut kind of the, the top seam here so that there's a little bit of a... Uh... Oh, that might be a little bit too close. We'll, we'll find out. Kind of like so. Cut it off. Like that. So it's kind of got this like dent like that, okay? So when I open it up, it's got a little hole. See that? Boom. All right? And then what you do is you start cutting down here like this and then... Here, let's go and go down here like this on the other side. Ooh. And then, and then you reverse it on the other side. And just alternate it every 
other. Really like this. Is that made it from date paper? Yep, same thing, same principle. And even though this is smaller, you can still fit through it. Hypothetically. We'll find out though, won't we? Okay. This? Yeah, I don't think you showed us last time. I don't, yeah, I may not have. I don't know. I, I would have remembered how to do it. You would remember this? I don't know. I had to look it up again to remember how to do this. So. I remember three things. Just like this. Almost there. Like this. And then. Uh, like this. And then let's go one more. Okay, let's see if this works. It might be a little bit flimsy, and I don't know if it'll break or not, but you pull it all out, and you get this nice, big hole that you can fit your body through. Oh, man. Okay. So, like so. Oh, man. Crazy, huh? What? He did that with a little paper. Yeah. And there you go. Voila. That's how you do it, guys. Impressive, right? It's cheating. It's cheating. It's sorcery. That's what it is. Exactly. Uh, so it's something that's impossible, but if you know the right steps, it actually works. And that that's, these steps just kind of show you exactly what that is, okay? What exactly I just did for you. All right? So uh, that's... That's what that it, it's it, what we're we're looking at with this particular example here is there are some things in life that are easy enough to understand in theory, but at the same time you don't know how they work. You don't know how they work, and it, it's like you know it, it it makes sense that you can fit your your body through a piece of paper, but at the same time it's like how do you do that? Like when it looks like it's just impossible, and so we're going to take time at camp this week to look at the doctrine of justification. Uh, and, and last night we examined just one part of justification. It's an act of God, right? And so it's something God does, we don't do. And this act is unlimited in its power. And it's not accompanied by you at all. And it's undeniably proven to work. And this morning, I want to fill out your understanding of what justification is. Uh, and we touched on it briefly last night. So this is going to be a little bit of a review, okay? But, but if you're... If you're continuing the definition sentence that we're creating, justification is an act of God. And the second part is to declare you right. Justification is an act of God to declare you right. Okay? And that line there is for the next final part of our definition that we'll fill in later. Okay? But it's to declare you right. Remember, to declare right means that you're considered or counted as righteous, as righteous even though technically you're not. It's not making you righteous. It's not transforming you so you no, no longer sin. All the doctrine of justification is saying is you look righteous. You appear righteous, okay? And so you can't be punished for looking unrighteous. God, through his own work and effort, does something to, uh, to declare you right. No longer are you wrong before God. You're right. You're righteous, okay? That's how, that's how this works. And that's a wonderful truth that we learn about justification, but... How does this work? How does this work? How is it God can just all of a sudden change your position before him? Does he magically just flip a switch in heaven and say, boom, you're righteous? Like, how does this work? Like, how can he do that? You're not righteous, so how can he call you righteous? 
Um, and so it might sound impossible, and if you're thinking that it is impossible, you're absolutely right. It is impossible. But God does the impossible. He does. Um, and, and, that's, and that's something we're going to find out. How does God pull this off? And just like fitting yourself through a piece of paper seems like it's impossible, but yet it still works, God pulls off the impossible with justification, okay? So we're going to look at the heart of justification this morning, and we're going to learn a couple of different things about it, okay? There are three steps that God takes to make this happen. And just kind of like I showed you step-by-step how to do the piece of paper thing, there's three steps to justification. And so these steps are not arranged... In, in chronological order. It's not like God does these, the first one, second one, third one, and then it's all done. Uh, they're arranged in logical order, logical order, which means that, what, I, what, it, what it means is that I, I arrange them this way because I want to show you how each step depends on the next one. Step one can't happen without, st- without step two. Step two can't happen without step three, okay? So they, they'll build this case for you as we go, but that's kind of how this works, all right? These steps actually happen almost all at the same time, though, if you're thinking about it chronologically, in time, okay? Um, So let's look at the first step, all right? Let's look at the first step. Um, If I can move it. There we go. First step is this, imputation. Imputation. Whoa, James, that's another big word you're throwing out there. What What are you doing to me? That's not right. Well, we need to talk about imputation if we're going to talk about justification, okay? So, we, so let me define what this, what this word means, all right? Imputation. Um, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, and we'll see this play out. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is counted, is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more... Uh, have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And, uh, and, and the free gift is not like the result of, of that one man's sin, for the judgment followed one trespass, brought, uh, it brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Okay, so, so we see this word justification here, right? This has to do with justification, but what's going on here? What's the idea? Well, let me just define imputation for you for a moment. I know what I just read to you probably didn't make a whole lot of sense, and that's okay, but just know this is where the doctrine of imputation can be found. It's right here in this passage, okay? What it's doing is this. It's God crediting Christ with your sinfulness and you with Christ's righteousness. So God is giving you Christ's righteousness, and he's giving Christ your sinfulness. That's imputation. It's a trade. Okay, it's kind of like, think of it like a bank account. Let's say you're in debt and you owe like $100 or something like that, okay? And you don't have any money in your bank account, you actually owe money. Well, I have $100 in my bank account. I don't owe anything, I actually have money, okay? 
And let's say I decide to give you my $100, okay? Well, that would pay your debt, right? That would pay your debt off. But I decide also to take your debt on. So now you have $100 in the bank, but I have a debt uh, that, you, that you originally had, right? That means that um, uh, we traded places. I get your debt, you get my $100. See how that works? That's kind of the doctrine of imputation, all right? And let me kind of give you another illustration that might be a little bit more easy to understand, okay? We got kicks and we got Cocoa Puffs, all right? Kicks and Cocoa Puffs. This, this bottle of kicks represents Christ and his righteousness, okay? This bottle of Cocoa Puffs represents you and your sinfulness, all right? You have so much sinfulness that you've stored up over the years. It's crazy, right? And Christ has so much righteousness that he's stored up over the years. What the doctrine of imputation does, says, is that there is an exchange that takes place, okay? Your Cocoa Puffs. Are you serious? You just had breakfast. What happens is there's a, there's a trade that takes place. Christ gets your sinful, yucky Cocoa Puffs, okay? And you, let's see, I don't want to mess this up, get Christ's amazing kicks of righteousness, okay? That's how this works. That's a doctrine of imputation. It's a big word, but it's really not that difficult to understand, right? It's very simple. You just trade righteousness for, for sinfulness. That's imputation. And it's like, that, that's amazing. But that's how God can say, you're right. You're right. When, God, when you appear before court, how is it God can say, hey, you're righteous. Why? Because you, you have righteousness now. You have Christ's righteousness. It's not yours, but it's Christ's. And he gives it to you. That's imputation, okay? And so um, it, there, there's a sense in which imputation is crediting something to someone and that what you're getting credited is righteousness and what Christ's getting credited is sinfulness, okay? And, and so, that, so when it comes to this idea of justification, we're, we're trying to answer the question, how can God declare me righteous? That's how. That's how he can do it. And it's amazing. The God of the universe would allow his own precious son to exchange his righteousness for your sinfulness. And that's one very important part of the heart of the gospel, that's, that's one very important part of the heart of justification. How can God declare you innocent? How can he give you that verdict, not guilty? Well, it's because if you've never ever did the crime, then you, you and you did nothing good, but, uh, sorry, nothing good but good all your life, even though you, sorry, even though you've done nothing but sinfulness all of your life, God can still say, you are completely righteous because it's as if you never did those things in the first place, okay? What a powerful truth, right? That's amazing. That's astounding. Uh, if you've ever thought to yourself, I don't think God could ever possibly forgive me for my sins. They're just too great. I can't see how God could possibly save me. I'm just too far lost. Um, my sin's too much. Well, yeah, your sin is too much, totally. I mean, look at all this sin here. That's you. And, and it doesn't matter how much is in there. The point is, God dumps all that out and he puts it in Christ. And he dumps all of Christ's righteousness and puts it in you. 
It doesn't matter how big the sin level is. The exchange is complete because Christ gives you his righteousness and God gives you, uh, or gives him your sinfulness, okay? So that's amazing. Don't walk away from this camp without being overwhelmed by the amazing truth that you can have the full righteousness of Christ attributed to you and lose all the sin that you once had. That's, that, that's, that's the doctrine of imputation, okay? That's justification. But there's a second part. What, what makes imputation work? Why is it God can switch these up like this? Like, how is that even possible? Like, why, why does he do that? Like, that is, that's crazy, right? Um, this is where we come into step number two. The doctrine of substitution. Substitution, okay? Or substitutionary atonement, as, as sometimes it's called. Substitution. Christ doesn't just impute his righteousness to you and impute your sin back uh, to himself. He can do this because in reality, he's not so much imputing as he is substituting. As he is substituting, okay? And so we looked at ten ver- or, uh, like eight or nine verses last time. I just want to look at one verse right now, okay? Just one verse to see this. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is where we see substitution. Second Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus, who didn't have any sin, to actually become sin for our sake. And the reason he did that is that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. God didn't just transfer sin to Christ and righteousness to you. What's actually going on underneath the surface is that Christ switched places with you. He switched places with you. This is what we call substitution. Christ substitutes into your sinful state, and you substitute into Christ's righteous state. So let me give you an example again with these mason jars. How does this work, okay? So we shall reset everything. Okay? Here's what happens. Here's here's you. Here's Christ. You originally had... um, There's the... uh, I'm missing the one. The important one. What? Is it here? Oh, there it is. Perfect. So you had... Sinfulness. Like so. And Christ had his righteousness, like so. We know that. But here's what substitution says. It's not just that Christ gives you his righteousness, you get his sinfulness and things like that. What's really going on underneath the surface? Really what happens is you trade places. Like this. I can get him. Like that. Just like that. You trade places. So, if, in other words, here's the thing. If God is going to pour out his righteousness over here on you, and God's going to pour out all of his blessings and love on Christ over here, well, how does God actually make it so that uh, he justifies you and that you actually get the blessing and Christ gets his, his wrath? You switch places. You switch places. That's a doctrine of substitution. And, and so, 
Uh, the reason why justification works is because is because of imputation, and the and you know you get Christ's righteousness and and he gets your sin. But the reason why imputation works is because of substitution. He takes your place on the cross. You take his place seated with God in the heavenly realm for, for all eternity. That's substitution. You deserve to receive this full wrath. You deserve it. All the wrath that, because of all the sin that you had, you deserve it. And, but, and, but here's the thing. When Jesus died on the cross... He endured all of God's wrath in your place. He traded places with you so that he took that punishment. There's not one ounce of wrath left from God's cup that you will receive. Not one ounce. Because Christ took it because he, in a sense, took on your sinful state. That's what he did. He became sin. It's not even so much that he took sin. He became sin. So that, you, so that he could actually take all the punishment that you deserve. And you became his righteousness. You didn't just actually take his righteousness. You became his righteousness. That's amazing, right? You became it. That's all because you were able to trade places. There was substitution that took place. Now, but now that God's wrath has been completely spent on Christ, what happens is that you get the full blessings. You should have received the wrath. But what do you get now? You get to become a child of God, just like Jesus is the Son of God. You get, to, you get the full privileges of being a son and a daughter of God. Um, we actually see this in John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, But to all those who, who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Children of God. It's as if when Christ looks at you and he, he's supposed, he's, he, you know, or sorry, when he looks at Jesus, he sees his son, right? But when he looks at you, who does he see? Another son, another daughter. How's that possible? Because Christ trade places with you. That's how it's possible. And so, and, and, and you better believe that when God looks at his son, that he loves his son. It, um, because like you know, Matthew 3, 7 says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, Christ is loved by the father. The father loves the son. Therefore, if you become a son or a daughter of God, you know that God loves you. You know that he loves you. And it's not because you're inherently great. It's simply because you traded places with Christ. That's why. So this doctrine of substitution is very important. The next time you think about the gospel and you ever wonder to yourself, why is it such a big deal? You know, like, why do we go to church every Sunday and sing song after song after song about the gospel, about Jesus? We preach message after message about uh, the, the gospel truth and, and how it impacts our lives. Um, why is it that we are motivating ourselves week after week in, in church to, to live lives that honor Christ and proclaim this gospel to the ends of the earth? Think about substitution. That's why. It's substitution. Substitution is the reason why we do what we do in church. Substitution is the reason why we can actually proclaim that Christ is, is, uh, is our greatest joy because he took our place on the cross. We, we, we are obligated to worship him. We love him. 
And we love the Lord because he has saved us from this wrath that we deserve. And he's given us this great place of righteousness. And we didn't deserve one bit of it. The reason you can stand trial before God and he can declare you innocent, that he can declare you not guilty, righteous before him, is because it's no longer you standing on trial before God. It's Christ who stands on trial before God. Christ is standing trial. And so when Christ stands trial, he takes your place as the criminal. No longer do you hear the words that we define the defendant guilty. You know, no longer do you hear like, you know, Joel is guilty or something like that. Or, you know, Faith is guilty or Luke is guilty. No longer is it you're here this this idea of that you are guilty of all charges. Now you hear the bone-chilling words. We find the defendant, Christ, guilty. That's amazing. That's amazing. He didn't deserve this, but he chose to take your place. He takes your verdict. He takes your punishment. And you get to go free and walk hand in hand with God the Father the way Christ has always done for all eternity, even though you don't deserve it either. That's substitution, and that's justification. But finally, we still don't have a complete picture here. There's still one step to go. There's kind of one key ingredient that we're missing. How can Christ substitute for us? What makes it possible for him to actually take our place? I mean, if you think about it, if I try to take your place on the cross to die for your sins, is it going to work? No. And if you try to do it for me, it's not going to work either, right? So what gives Christ the right to actually take your place? Well, we need to look at one final step, and that is this, union with Christ. Our union with Christ, okay? That's step number three. And to do this, I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And if you've been an unstained, you, you're familiar with this passage. We went over this recently, okay? So, but this is the absolute heart of the gospel, the core reason everything works, and you can be declared right with God. Um, and so go ahead and turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, and let's look at verses 1 through 9, all right? It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what life without justification is. It's dead. There's nothing you can do, and you're hopelessly bound to eternal doom. That's what it's like without justification. You're locked in kind of layer by layer, sin upon sin, uh, on top of even Satan's influence over you. There's nothing you can do to get out of this position of being sinful and therefore being worthy of judgment. So what can actually cut through this thick layer of prison walls that's trapping you? Verse 4 tells us, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated with him, us with him 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It says the, the thing that makes a difference is but God. God acts on your behalf. It's God who breaks down those walls. It's God who can change the hopeless situation. It's God who can declare you right, even though you're wrong. And how does he do it? He makes you alive together with Christ. And he raises you up together with Christ. He seats you together with Christ. It's together, together. There's union with Christ that's going on. If you aren't bound to Christ, if you aren't tethered to him so tightly, there's no way on earth that you can be justified before God. You must be attached to Christ. You must be. And that's why the language all over Ephesians tells us that we're in Christ. We're in Christ because we must be bound to Christ. If we're not bound to Christ, then Christ, then God's always going to punish you for your sin. And if, and if Christ, you're not with Christ, you're never going to receive his blessing of eternal life. But if you're with Christ, he's obligated to love you because he's obligated to love his own son. So what, is it, what happens here with our jars? How does union work? Well, it works kind of like this. If this is, we'll just switch these back here. If this is Christ and his righteousness, and this is you and your sinfulness, how does union work? It works like this. That at the end of the day, the reason why he can substitute for you is that, in a sense, you're like one and the same person. You're like one and the same person. You are united with Christ. You are bound to him. And that gives him the, all, the in a sense, the eligibility to substitute in your place as the one who can take your punishment. He is your perfect representative. He's your perfect representative. I can't be your perfect rep- representative. No one can be your perfect representative except for Christ. It's kind of like um, the, the reason why stunt doubles are so effective are because they're made to look exactly like the actor, right? Like, you know, if, if a stunt double, like, you know, is jumping out of an airplane or something like that, and, you know, in one shot he's wearing a blue shirt, and then, you know, when he's jumping out as a stunt double, he's wearing a red shirt, that doesn't really work very well, right? He's got to look exactly like the, per- the actor that he's trying to be, be a stunt double for, right? Or like maybe he's like, if he's got dark hair in one scene, and then when he's punching the bad guy, he's got blonde hair or something like that. That would look really awkward, right? That doesn't work. Well, in the same way, Christ must look like you. He must look exactly like you. And he does. He fulfills every single part of who you are. And the question is, how does he do that? How does he fulfill everything? For, well, for one, Matthew 5.17 says that he fulfilled the law for you. He fulfilled the entire law. You were supposed to be someone who did the entire law perfectly, but you couldn't. But what did Christ do? He did it all for you. He did it all for you. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. And that's what Jesus did. He also endured every temptation that you couldn't. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
He was tempted for you, and he endured every single temptation. And so he qualifies as someone who can actually take your place. He also communicated with God when you couldn't. Hebrews 5.7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he, has, he was heard because of his reverence. You couldn't cry out to God. You couldn't plead your case to God. But Jesus could because he could cry out to God on your behalf. He can take your place. He is the perfect representative because he unifies himself with you. He is your perfect stand-in, your, your best understudy, the quintessential stunt double for you. He can take your place because he's your perfect representative. So if anyone can pull this off, it's our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. He's our representative. And because he's our representative, we're united with him in whatever he does. So here's the thing. When Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. We died to our old life, our, old, our life of sin, but then when he rose from the dead, we rose with him as well to new and eternal life. That's how Christ can become our substitute. That's how Christ can impute his righteousness to us and we have our sin imputed to him. That's how we can become justified before God. We can be declared right in his presence. That's why Ephesians 8.1 says, Now therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 